to be looking in the Bible at Ephesians chapter 3. I invite you to take a Bible and turn to uh, the book of Ephesians about halfway through the New Testament. Uh, a short little letter of about six chapters in chapter 3. Now, uh, before I read the scripture, I would like to tell you where uh, of some things I would like for you to do toward the end of the this, this service. Um, I was asked this week by some people very involved in our church, what is a faith promise? Now, uh, faith promise is a system we use to support foreign missions, cross-cultural missions. And we went to a different format last weekend for our annual missions conference that was great, but, but we did not explain what faith promise was. So let me take about 60 seconds to do so. Uh, we asked our members to uh, promise to give a certain amount to missions by faith above and beyond their normal giving to this church. Uh, and, and maybe the faith will be that God will provide in some unforeseen way. Maybe the faith will be that you'll deprive yourself of something or, or postpone a purchase and use that money toward faith promise. We, we use that, we dedicate that, that money strictly to cross-cultural missions. It, it, we don't ever go into that account for any other, other reason. Missions, missionary support, mission projects, those kinds of things. And so that is what faith promise is, and we ask our, our members to do that. At the end of this service, if you've not yet turned in a card and would like to do so, there's a box on that table over there with a little sign saying Faith Promise. And you can put one of these cards in there if you're prepared to do so. Uh, also, two other relief efforts I want to call your attention to. I was called last night about CHIP is the, is the Presbyterian Church in America have a disaster relief fund for Japan. So I, I went to the Mission to the World site of our denomination, and yes, we have a thing called Minute... MTW, Minute Man for uh, Missions. And it's a disaster relief team that is already in action and accepting donations uh, under their oversight for Japan. Uh, rather than giving you all the details, I put a link on my blog, pastorchipmiller.com. It's there at the end of the bulletin if you want to look that up. You click that on and you can give toward that. The other, the third thing I'd like to mention is that uh, Donnie St. Germain, who preached here a year ago, and he and his wife Sharon, uh, this past week were in the Dominican Republic. They drove over from Haiti. He's the president of El Shaddai Ministries that we heavily support and have been involved in with church planting and orphanages and so forth in Haiti. They were going to get a car repaired over in the Dominican Republic, and they were attacked uh, on the road, almost kidnapped. But all their possessions were taken. They, they were beat up, uh, and their car was heavily damaged, probably beyond repair. And so we want to, to help replace the, the automobile, computers, Blackberries, iPad. They had several thousand dollars that was to be used on the car repairs, and uh, uh, they're, they're building a house. And so we want to help with that. And so if you would like to make a donation for the St. Germains, you can just put El Shaddai, and you could drop a check in that box also over there where the Faith Promise cards, or if you want to uh, uh, send a check to the church this week, and we will send all that money. One of our own members serves on the board of El Shaddai Ministries, but that will be used for that. Okay. Um, one of the great struggles in the early church was that Gentiles were coming into what had been a Jewish family. And that was a, a big point of division and a, and a very much a struggle with the Jewish community of faith. So part of that is being addressed here in Ephesians 3. Though I'm going to read about uh, 13 verses, we'll only look at two or three of the verses. Hear God's word from Ephesians 3. 
For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit of God's holy apostles to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. So ends the reading of God's word. The Jews had great difficulty and struggled with the fact that God now was including Gentiles in what had been exclusively Jewish before. Let me tell you about Paul, a little bit about the man, and then the circumstances. He's in prison when he writes this, and then basically his message and his mission. Um, These are words inspired by the Holy Spirit of the Apostle Paul. Now, we don't know really anything about his childhood, except that he grew up in a, a city called Tarsus. He, as his family were, were Roman citizens. Tarsus was a center of academia, and he had the best education that money could buy at that time in history in that part of the world. He was zealous for his Jewish faith. He just didn't believe it. He practiced it. Uh, He sought to order his life by the law of Moses. He observed the festivals and feasts and and all the things that, that devout Jews were to do at that time. And he was proud of those things. Later in the New Testament, he he writes how his credentials were impeccable as far as if a person could could earn their way to God through religious observance. He was at the top of the list. And he hated what Jesus Christ stood for. We have no indication that he met Jesus during Jesus' earthly ministry. But he knew about his message, and he thought it was dangerous. And he especially thought the followers of Jesus that were called the way, that they were dangerous. So he was there persecuting Christians. He was there when the first Christian martyr died, a man named Stephen. Uh, Saul was his name at that time. And he was, it says, the Bible says he was in not only agreement, he was in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death. He receives legal documentation to persecute, to throw Christians into jail. And while he is about that, in the very midst of that, Jesus appears to him on a road where he was traveling and speaks to him. The resurrected Christ speaks to him 
and Saul is converted. It is one of the most profound, literally miraculous conversions in history. He is baptized, and he stays put for a little while. He stays where he was a couple of years. And then he begins to preach at the invitation of Barnabas. He comes to this man that's still very suspicious in the eyes of Christians. And he asks him to go with him to Jerusalem. And he only stays a short time before they're basically run out of town because the Jewish leaders want Saul killed. They want him lynched, basically. And so Saul, now Paul, returns to the place of his birth. And he stays there for ten years. We call that the silent period. Not that he was silent, but it's silent that we don't have detailed account of what happened during that time. But for ten years, he, he was there. And then Barnabas, the guy who had come to him ten years earlier, hears about uh, Paul. And he remembers him. He remembers their first meeting. And so he goes and he gets Paul and invites him to go with him on a, a mission of sort. And he goes to a place called Antioch to help some brand new Gentile Christians. These had come to faith. He asked Paul to go with him, and he begins to teach them and minister there. They stay there a year. Uh, and then they're sent, Paul and Barnabas are sent to, on famine relief. They, they're going to collect a relief offering, kind of like what we're talking about with Japan, and they're to carry that to some Christians in Jerusalem. So they go back to Jerusalem, where he essentially had been run out of some time before. By now, it's about 46 A.D. And they had a strategy when they leave Jerusalem as to how they would uh, do ministry, how they would do missions, how they would express their faith, as Eric was saying. Now here, this was the strategy. They would go into an area. Can you imagine? Can you imagine going to a large city and there's not one believer? I mean, if you travel most places in the world today, even though there's still so many people that have not been reached with the gospel... In, in most of the countries of the world, there's some Christian witness. Maybe it's a cross on an old church. Maybe you can find somebody that will profess the name of Christ in most of the major cities of the world, though not all. But imagine coming like to Macon, Georgia, and knowing there's not one Christian there. There's not one believer there. And my job as a missionary is to reach people and to build up a local church that will multiply, and then I'm going to go on and do the other stuff at the same time. Oh, and by the way, nobody wants to hear you, and they're going to do all they can to stop you from speaking. So that was his strategy. They would go, he and Barnabas would go, and the first place they'd go would be to a synagogue where the Mosaic law was, law was taught. And they would start with the scriptures, and they would seek to persuade those that believed in the one God and believed in the scriptures. And they would also seek to speak to what was called the God-fearing Gentiles, those Gentiles who also believed in God. Now, normally that may last a few weeks, sometimes a few months, but eventually they'd kick him out. They'd get mad and run him off. He'd get kicked out. By then, hopefully, there were some converts, some potential leaders. They would seek to train those. Then they'd move on to another city and start again. Now, in the first century, they went from, from places like uh, Derby, cities Lystra, Iconium, Antioch. Then they go to Macedonia and cities like Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea and Achaia. Then they go to southern Greece, where there's in Athens and Corinth. And he goes through the city of Ephesus. And he preaches there. And a riot breaks out. 
And eventually, to make a long story very short, he's arrested for his own protection, uh, lest he gets torn to pieces. Uh, the, the authorities, the Romans, arrest him for his own protection because of this riot that's going on. He, uh, he appeals to Caesar, and so his case is now going to take him to Rome. And when he writes this now, he's in prison. Uh, and he's writing back to these Christians at Ephesus, who, by the way, it has been now 20 years since he was in Ephesus originally and planted the church. So that much time has passed. He's writing back to them, and he's in prison, and he says something very odd at the very beginning. And I'm not going through all these verses this slowly. I'm just going to look at about three or four highlights in this whole passage. And this is one of them. He calls himself Paul the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. Prisoner? We know he's in prison, but isn't he a prisoner of the emperor? Of Nero? A prisoner of the Romans? Awaiting trial? Because he appealed his case? He says, I am a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Now some would say, well, he just used that as a term because he's a servant of Christ Jesus. I don't think that was the case. I think what he meant by here is that he's not speaking in human terms. He didn't interpret his circumstances with human terms. He believed in the sovereignty of God over all affairs of people and of my life and your life. And so, do you ever feel like you're a victim of circumstances? I mean, I, I talk to people, I feel this way, and I'll have people say, you know, I just feel trapped. I just feel trapped in this job or in this circumstance, or I'm a prisoner, or I'm, I, I don't have any options, I am stuck. And, and it's like, I am just a victim of what has happened to me. I can't do anything about it, and this is just the way it is. That's not the attitude of Paul. Yes, he's, he's got restricted access. He, yes, he, he can't move about and preach and teach like he was doing. But he says, I'm a prisoner of the Lord. God's got me right here. In the inquirers class that I was teaching a few minutes ago, we talk about the sovereignty of God. Sovereignty is one of those big, big church terms that means rule. God is the king, sovereign. He, he rules unilaterally. He doesn't need other people's advice over all his creation. So we recognize scripture that says God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That God controls uh, all, all that happens, the good and the bad. And that's a, that's a tough, that's a big pill to swallow, especially if you've not heard things like that or come from a, a background and, of, of reading the Bible with that in mind. Not fatalism, but that God is sovereign. Now, the first step in understanding that is say, yeah, I believe that's true. So we begin to look out at the world and say, I, th I think that's true. And then the next step will probably apply it to other people's lives. <laughs> You know, something happens to them, and you say, well, God is sovereign. It's still not home yet. When it's home, it's when something happens to you. And it's easy when they're good things. Oh, look, I knew God was in control. I got an A, or I got a raise. What if you hadn't gotten an A? Does that mean he wasn't in control? What if you hadn't gotten a raise? Does that mean he was And when bad things happen, when harmful, pain, uh, you know, painful things, imprisonment happens. At that point, that is when we really believe or not in God's sovereignty. If I stood up here and said, well, the Bible teaches from these places God is sovereign, and I believe that, and then I walk out of here and just provoked by everything that happens, lose my temper when something doesn't go my way, I don't believe in the sovereignty of God, if that's my reaction. 
So what we have with Paul's example is he, he not only believed it, he practiced it. And he said, yeah, I'm in jail, but I'm here because God's got me in jail. I am the prisoner of the Lord. And then he says, for the sake of you Gentiles. What does he mean by that? I mean, he's like not blaming them, but saying, I am here for your sake. How is he there for, for their sake? Well, this is hard for us to understand. But because we all live in a world that's racist in some fashion or form, skin color, nationality, or whatever, and we all have, you know, it's, it's just part of being human, I guess, part of our sinful makeup. We can understand this. The reason he was there was not because he so much preached that Jesus was the Messiah. It was the implications of that that Gentiles were going to be brought in. And the gospel was for them, too, and not just Jews. You say, where are you getting that? Well, I got it right out of Acts chapter 22. This is what landed him in jail. You don't need to turn there. But what happened, he's arrested. The government official allows him to speak on his public defense to all these people, to the Jewish leaders, and it says they listened to him quietly as he made his defense, and then he gets to a certain point in his defense, and they all respond. He says... He said that Jesus said to him, Depart, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And then the Bible says, At this they shouted, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. So that was the flashpoint. The flashpoint is that this message is just not for us, him being Jewish as well. It's for the non-Jewish people too. And that was just, they just couldn't stomach that. It's like when God sent Jonah, told Jonah, commissioned him to go and preach in the Assyrian city of Nineveh. Jonah doesn't want to go, and he goes the other way. Many people think, well, he was afraid of the Assyrians. He wasn't afraid of the Assyrians. It tells us later, he, he said, I knew this would happen. If I came here and preached, they'll repent, and you'll have mercy on them. He hated the Assyrians. He didn't want them to experience God's mercy. They were brutal with the lands that they, the people they conquered. So that's what you have there. When, when it would hit the fan, when it would blow up, was when Paul was not just talking about the Scriptures, but when he would say, it's for Jews and Gentiles. Now, what was his message? I'm not going to look at all the particular verses, but in verses 6, well, 1 to 6, he refers to it three times as a mystery. He said in verse 2 that grace that was given to me, that this mystery made known to me by revelation. In verse 4, in reading this then, you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. He repeats it again in verse 6. Now, when you think about a mystery, when I think about it, it's usually some kind of phenomenon, some kind of scientific thing, Bermuda Triangle mystery, you know, or, or uh, UFOs, you know, turn on night and watch the mystery about things like I'm sorry, I probably offended some of y'all that are really serious about that. Uh, but uh, there's one in every crowd at least. And so... It's, it's something we think, you just can't explain it. Or this past week I was listening on an audio book to Agatha Christie, and, and then there were none, that, that novel. And, and you kind of expect she sets you up with all these, you know, you're set up with all these characters leading up to, and, and, and then, then it's going to be some ending that you just don't expect. That's not how he's using this word, okay? When he uses the word mystery, it's not as though God is misleading us or making us go one way and then he switched it and all along it's over here and he's making us look over here. What he means is this was hidden in the Old Testament. There were glimpses of it, but now it's openly revealed. 
That's how he uses the word mystery. Not that God's trying to hide something from others. But it's, it, it had hints in the Old Testament as God had promised a redeemer after Adam and Eve had sinned and they had experienced spiritual death. And then we have all these prophecies about this redeemer who would come. And Isaiah talking about he'll be born of a virgin and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Um, and, and all these things. Where he would be born? Micah saying he'd be born in Bethlehem. And Psalm 22, describing how he would die by crucifixion. And Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, and all the descriptions there of the Messiah. Many, many more. And so then it's fulfilled in Christ. And now we look back and we see, oh, that's what it meant. We can read in the Old Testament, say, oh, it was pointing ahead to this. It was pointing ahead to when Christ would die. And he's saying, that's the mystery now. So we understand. We see it fully. And he says, God had commissioned me to preach that. And that through this gospel... People, I guess the best way to put it, groups of people who, who previously would have nothing to do with one another, now they are made into one body. And so in the epistles in the New Testament, it emphasizes there's neither Greek nor Jew nor free nor slave nor, nor barbarian nor male nor female, on and on. What it's saying is in Christ we are one. You know, it's that we are not received into that family based on some racial or economic or national criteria that has to be met. And that's the mystery. That's the mystery that's been revealed. That was new revelation that God would now replace what had been a physical nation, the Jewish people, with a new institution, you might say, the church, a new international community. Well, what was his mission? In verse 7, he says, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Paul regarded not only his conversion, but his call to ministry as an enormous privilege. He was so grateful. He was so grateful that God allowed him, commissioned him to be a missionary, to take the gospel cross-culturally to others. And yet he calls himself in verse 8, although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So he was conscious. He said that about himself or similar things. Throughout his read in the New Testament, he'll recall and refer to himself, the least of the apostles, the chief of sinners. Uh, and, and he lived. He lived with the awareness that he not only had not believed, he had been a persecutor of the followers of Christ. And now he's proclaiming that same message that he had tried to wipe out before. And so there was a combination, a combination of great conviction, deep conviction, and great humility. Deep conviction, great humility. That is a powerful combination. I'll tell you what's not a powerful combination. There are plenty of these around. Great conviction about certain things and arrogance. That's not a great combination. They may know and say the right things, may believe the right things, but not be humble. There's nothing attractive about that. Here's another combination that's not too nice. No convictions, but great humility. I don't know anything. Yeah, to each his own. Do what you want. What's true for you may be true for you. It's not true for me. But Oh, hey, I don't mean to sound proud or arrogant in saying that. I don't mean to offend you. That doesn't help anything. But you take great conviction on biblical truth and great humility, and it is a powerful combination, and that's what the Apostle Paul had. Uh, people could see that, that this message did not originate with him. When you say, Chip, what's humility? I, I like a definition I heard from Josh McDowell when I was in high school. 
He said, humility is knowing who you are and the source of your strength. Humility, it's not saying, oh, I'm nothing, I'm nothing. Here, I'm a Christian, walk on me. Here, I'm just everybody's dorm. He said, it's knowing who you are and the source of your strength. John the Baptist was a humble man. When they came out, the people came out and said, who are you? Are you the prophet? No. Are you Ezekiel? No. I mean, Elijah? He said, no. Who are you then? I'm a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make ready the way of the Lord. John the Baptist was humble. He knew who he was and the source of his strength. Paul was humble, but he had great convictions. In verse 8, he says he was making known Christ's riches to the Gentiles, that he was commissioned to preach, to preach. We have a negative view of the word preach today. Somebody's talking to you and telling you what you ought to be doing. And what do you say? Don't tell me, preach to me. Don't give me a sermon. Here I am giving you both. The word, it, it kind of, you know, you kind of get this idea that I'm going to be just kind of doing like this, and so we don't like that term. You know what preach means here? It means to announce good news. To announce good news. That's, that's what he means. He was called to preach. He would go into the marketplace, as I told you earlier, he'd go into the synagogues, wherever people would gather, and he would preach. He would announce good news. He would take the scriptures and he would explain those. And he would say how this was fulfilled. Acts 19 tells us in Ephesus he entered the synagogue. Synagogue. He continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. So he knew it was good news. He knew the gospel was good news to all who believe, including Gentiles, including those who were not uh, had the inheritance of the covenant promises in the Old Testament. And so he, he referred to the gospel as the unsearchable riches of Christ. And so what's rich about it? Well, he tells us in the two previous chapters, Ephesians 1 and 2, the riches of being of resurrection from, from death to sin to life, victorious enthronement with Christ in the heavenlies, reconciliation with God, being incorporated with all believers into this new family, Access to the Father through Jesus Christ by the Spirit, membership in God's kingdom in his household. All these are a foretaste of what's to come. So the gospel is riches. And he says it's unsearchable. So we see in Paul two of the greatest motives and incentives in evangelism. He had the revelation of God, he had the message which we had, and he had the commission, which was it has to be told others. So if you want to express your faith... And like the training next weekend, which is wonderful. When I first heard that training a few years ago at Perimeter, I said, this is perfect because it is a way to dialogue with someone. And I've been able to lead others to Christ by using that. Here in the South, when it seems though everybody says they're a Christian, you know, that's just kind of a cultural thing, though they may never have anything to do with it. Uh, that, what he's going to train you in, is perfect for that. But it's just explaining. It's explaining to a person what it means to believe and, and what Christ has done. But you put those two together, the message and the commission, because some messages have to be told. I mean, there probably, hopefully there was no debate as to whether the tsunami warning should have been set off in the Pacific the other day uh, or on the West Coast. I mean, what would somebody say? You know, this is pretty important information, but why don't we think about it overnight? I don't want to offend anybody. I don't want to think I'm pushing my truth off on them. Maybe they've got their own truth. No, you'd say, hey, information like that has to be told. What if, 
And hopefully someday someone will. What if someone found a, a cure for all forms of cancer? A cure uh, for Alzheimer's, for Parkinson's, uh, a real cure, uh, a final cure, no question whether it would work, cure. And what if, uh, what if you had that? We would say, you not only should tell others, you're obligated to tell others. It would be criminal not to tell others, to, hold that, to withhold that from other people. That's the way Paul viewed the gospel. It's, everyone, it's everyone's right to hear. It's everyone's privilege to get to hear this good news about Christ. And so he made it known. The message demands sharing. Let me leave you with a last thought and then a couple applications. When I turned 16, my parents gave me an old Ford Mustang and a set of Craftsman tools. <laughs> you do the math. I mean, I, they basically, you can drive it as long as you keep it running. So I, I liked mechanics, so I, I did mechanical type things, but I didn't know much about it, so I began to learn through trial and error. And it seemed as though the car broke down, something went wrong with it every week, so if it, it one, you know, different, different things, so I learned along the way. First time I remember hearing the word alignment was about the front tires. I put the brakes on, the tire would, it wouldn't go straight anymore, it'd go off to the right or the left. I remember going into the tire store, and what's wrong with it? Well, it's, it's out of alignment. Alignment, yeah, it's got to, these things, it's got to be going straight. We can align it. About 20 years ago, the word alignment started showing up in management books and in organizations, and many of you use this word. And it's like you, you've got to get alignment in your organization. You've got to get everybody on the same page. You've got everybody playing off the same playbook. You know, that, that they not only know what's happening, everybody's moving in the same direction. You've got to get synergy, and that's alignment, to be in on the, the ultimate purpose of the organization or the church or your business or whatever it is. Alignment. Well, I want to be aligned with what God's doing. And this is one of the only places in all the Bible that tells us what God's doing. And he says if in verse 10, his intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. What he is doing, his purpose now is he is a redeeming a people to himself from all backgrounds, Jew, Gentile, as Revelation says, from every tribe, nation, and tongue, every kindred and tribe. And so, I don't know about you, but I want to be aligned with that purpose. I'm 55, and so I kind of thinking now things I hadn't thought before, like what, what kind of legacy, what I want to do for the family, what would I like, and hopefully some of you, uh, depending on your age and stage of life, you're thinking about what do I want to leave behind. I don't necessarily just mean material things or funds or trust funds or a business that you built hoping that your family and your children or grandchildren will will uh, inherit and run this business but but what kind of impact do you hopefully you're asking those kind of what, what do I want to do along with the purpose of God now I would like to leave this life so aligned with God's purpose that it, the transition to heaven will be almost like a bump in the road from that standpoint that we are so aligned with God's purpose, and his purpose is that people come to know him all over the world, every tribe and nation and tongue, those who've not heard, that they would hear the gospel and believe. 
And so that's the kind of alignment. You want to be in on the purposes of God? You say, well, I know what I want to do. I want to leave a legacy to my kids. What kind of legacy? Well, here, uh, a material legacy, a uh, moral. No, think bigger. 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 What's the purpose of God? What kind of legacy along with the purpose of God? Well, I want my grandkids to be influenced this way or, or that way. That's great. Bigger. What is the purpose of God? Here it says that he would redeem for himself. He's building this family, this eternal family. How does what you are doing align with what God's doing? One other thing, I didn't say this at the first service, but those that are younger and you really wonder how God may use you one day, maybe you're a student, high school, college, young adult, you're not quite sure, you got a job, but you know this isn't really what God has for me down, that I'm going to move on a path. Paul was prepared for over 10 years. And he was bright. This guy knew He knew a lot. He already had his formal education behind him. For 10 years, God has him off, you might say, preparing him for the ministry that would come later. There's there's a very proper place for preparation, and make the most of it. David Nicholas, who died a few weeks weeks ago, that y'all have heard me talk about, he wasn't known as an academic, but he's the only guy I ever knew while I was in seminary. Barb and I were there. Once a year, he'd travel up to Reform Seminary to do lots of business, and he'd, we inevitably would get together for dinner, and he would sit at the table and say, Chip, you've got to be getting this information down. I want to know you're studying hard. You make the most of this time. Make the most of the time for the equipping and the preparation at this time. That was a... You'd be surprised how few people would say stuff like that. They'd always say, get involved in ministry. Get involved in the church. Don't let, don't let what you're learning in school thwart you from that. He was, you got a brief time to prepare, and you better make the most of it. Okay. Two applications in closing. Personal application, we can all use improvement in sharing the gospel with others. I hope, if you can, be a part of Express Your Faith this Friday night and Saturday morning. But other applications... Uh, be involved corporately with what God's doing through faith promise giving. I hope you'll give consideration, prayerful consideration, to making a faith promise um, in, in line with what I was talking about earlier. The second one is uh, an offering for Donnie and Sharon St. Germain. Uh, though it goes to them, he is the leader of a ministry that's got over 40 churches and probably is well connected with over 100, between 100 and 200 pastors in training. So even helping them through a donation to help recover this stuff after this kidnapping attempt uh, will multiply itself and change lives. And the last is that relief uh, offering for Japan uh, through the mission to the world. You can link it on my blog if you want to do that. Let's pray together. Our, Our Father, we praise you for your purpose in us being a part of it. Thank you for redeeming us through the good news about Christ, of his being a substitute for our sin him paying for our sin on the cross and now us having new life and not only having the message of the new life but being commissioned to share it with others. Equip us, use us. All of us have different spheres of relationships with family and friends and acquaintances. We pray that we might look for opportunities even this coming week to express concern for another person, let them know we're praying for them and even speak to them about their soul. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Our closing hymn is a uh, paraphrase uh, from some of these verses.